So I have seen the change in the younger generation. The younger generation in their eyes, you can see it. They can see a better future than their parents and grandparents had. And we have to help them achieve it. That's right. I'm your host, Emil Jula Nøtrup, and you're listening to Ukraine and Beyond. Consistency is key. Slava Ukraini. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. Welcome to a conversation about Ukraine and more specifically about Ukrainian history and a Ukrainian history project slash slash series that I want to do with Olena, who is with me today, and then also two other Ukrainians, which is a girl named Diana and a girl that Olena also knows and and a girl that I have also spoken to before, uh, which is um, Jeff Genian. But before I say some more about my thoughts about this project, I want to hear from uh, you, Olena. Uh, maybe first of all, where you uh, yeah, where you are right now, and then also as we talked about before, you, maybe you can explain this um, the thing with the Ukrainian name uh, system because it is a bit um, like different from um, in Denmark where you just have only one name. Um, yeah, that's you have a, a, a different uh, way of approaching names in uh, in Ukraine. So it would be nice just to have that explained. So yeah, the word is yours. Yeah, hello. I hope you hear me well. I'm very pleased to be here today. And I think it's an important topic to discuss. And um, yeah, I've been at rest with this question about creating names. That's a question I, re- I often get from my um, international friends because they cannot understand this variety of Ukrainian names. And the thing is that in Ukraine, we always have official names. So official name is the name in the passport um, yeah, and uh, our official documents. And um, this name we use for uh, applying somewhere officially whenever it is a visa procedure or university or getting any state services. But uh, very often we have um, so-called softened uh, forms of our names or um, the forms that sound more informal. And this is usually how parents address their children um, or how friends address each other. Um, yeah, for example, just yeah, just for you to get it, like uh, there is a full name Katarina, but usually uh, many people as parents, friends call um, girls with such a name Katya. Or um, there is a full name Anastasia, but usually everyone address Anastasia. So these are some more or less set forms that um, have developed under influence of different cultures, I believe, under just uh, informal culture of shortened names. Um, yeah, and that's why we um, so we often have several names and it's hard for foreigners to understand why, for example, on Instagram or Facebook, um, the names may differ or yeah, on LinkedIn as well and different social media. Uh, but yeah. That's how it was. Um, unfortunately, also touching upon history, a lot of really great Ukrainian and authentic Ukrainian names have, um, yeah, have disappeared, both male and female, because, uh, well, they were just oppressed by um, by the Soviet uh, culture, and unfortunately, we also have a lot of 
like uh, originally Russian names in Ukrainian that are probably more popular. And now I believe the modern um, generation and the modern yeah, the young parents, they try to revive um, they try to revive this culture and they try to get back to the original Ukrainian names. That's why. And another, for example, my name, uh, like you know that I have a name Helen on Instagram that just because um, once when I was a teenager and I visited an international camp, um, there were quite a lot of people from Eastern Europe there and from Asian part of, for example, Russia. So Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, um, and Kazakhstan and other countries. And there, are, there is a variety of names. There is a variety of vowels there. Um, so for example, there is a name Olena, there is a name Alina, there is a name Elina, and they differ only with the first vowel. And for foreigners, especially like British uh, speakers, it's, they read it just according to pronunciation rules. So my name was often pronounced as Olina, yeah, because E in English, A, B, C, D, E. And um, very often when uh, they dressed like a bright, like a range of girls could not really get whom they were really addressing to. Um, so I started using Helen because it's a British equivalent of my name. So it's originally a Greek name and it just it, it was easier for my friends to uh, find this division and to single uh, me out among, um, yeah, among others. And somehow it became my nickname with many international friends of mine. And I kept it on my Instagram because it's my private page. Yeah. Mm. And I just think it's very interesting, actually, that there is this thing about um, yeah, different names for Ukrainians. And yeah, yeah, you are a good example because your official name is Olena, right? Olena Tutko. And then you have on Instagram, you have Elena. And then uh, you also say uh, type Helen. Um, so that's like three different names, uh, for example. And that it, it just it also just have uh, confused me a little bit um, talking to all these Ukrainians that there are all these names, as you said that um, it had also for some of your uh, international friends. And I actually also like the very first Ukrainian I spoke to that was even last year, um, Veronica. She um, she kind of explained it to me also uh, like the whole system also that you can have like your mother's name or your father's name or something like that and i think i kind of understood it but now when i think about it I'm, I'm not sure i really like got it um completely but it's, it's nice to to have that explanation now um and of that i want now to talk a bit about some of the thoughts that i've been having about making this Ukrainian history series slash project. And first of all, I think I want to do it because I am very interested in history. And I actually believe that my passion and interest in history is a big part of the reason for why I am so um, occupied by Ukraine and why I think that Ukraine is so important and that's because I think that if you are interested in history as I am for example and as I know you are and Jevgenia and also Diana are then um, it is kind of I don't know how to put it 
Um, but I will just say it like this. I think if you have this interest, it is very difficult not to realize how important the war in Ukraine is for the overall global struggle for like freedom, peace and prosperity in the world. So so that's a, that's a big part of the reason for why I want to do this project. And then there is also other reasons. And one of them is that as Ukraine finds itself in this war, I think that the Ukrainian history then become uh, that much more important because I really think that knowledge about Ukrainian history and knowledge about the Ukrainian people's history um, is also a very good way to um, to like understand why the Ukrainians are fighting so much uh, that they do and why they are so resilient to the Russian uh, attempt to occupy the, the country. And I also have some uh, other thoughts about it, but I think that first I will uh, give the word to you so that you also can um, yeah, explain a bit about uh, how you see the, like the connection between history um, in general, history, the history of Ukraine and why it is so relevant um, as a part um, of this war as well. Yeah, so first of all, I don't know if um, there is such a scene in English or in um, any European country, I believe there is, but um, in Ukrainian, we have uh, a saying, we have an adage that without knowing your past, uh, you cannot build your future. And that's the primary goal, why um, it is so important because, uh, well, without knowing our past, without knowing our history, um, yeah, we cannot build a prosperous future. We cannot build the European future for Ukraine. And um, it's essential for um, two categories, for two groups of people. Uh, first of all, um, it is really quintessential for Ukrainians to understand that because we have young generations who are brought up um, in a different um, society, in different community. Uh, for example, um, it's it's really hard to compare the um, generation of my grandparents who were born, raised and lived most of their lives in the Soviet Union than generation of my parents who were born and went to school in the Soviet Union and then there was the Soviet Union collapse and then they basically became parents um, and um, yeah, started their career already in independent Ukraine. And uh, my generation, who has never seen what the Soviet Union is and who was born um, already in the independent Ukraine, and um, the younger generation who were born after 2000s, for example, and um, even 2010, let's put it that way, and who even didn't see the revolution, the Orange Revolution, and who um, most likely did not remember the revolution of dignity. So there were like kids, we talk about kids now. And um, I think that the impact, um, so um, it's it's very interesting to observe the impact, yeah, the impact of cultures. When I, for example, when, wherever, like, all people in the Soviet Union or my parents, they were obliged to learn Russian at school, uh, modern generation like me and the um, the kids, yeah, the, the nowadays kids, they um, focus on English more as second foreign, as the second language, of course, after Ukrainian, and how they grew up, how they understand, like the young generations are more globalized in general. I would put it that way, 
And um, it's interesting to observe those tendencies because uh, when we say Ukraine has European values and Ukraine belongs to Europe, these are not empty words. And um, to track it, you should really look into the history of Ukraine. On the other hand, I think it's also um, significant um, to learn it and uh, to look into it for, well, whether we talk about a European Parliament, uh, yeah, um, some MPs there, or whether we talk about politicians or just average citizens, because they have to understand that the history of Ukraine is connected with the history of Europe. Yeah, because a lot of, actually, if we think about it, probably in one of the episodes we'll talk about it, but a lot of um, European monarchs and monarchy families, they come from Kiev and Rus. They take um, yeah, their roots from Ukraine. At the same time, um, Kiev, it was one of the legends said that um, yeah, the first um, kniaz, so the first kings, they come from uh, Scandinavian countries, from Vikings. They took their roots from Vikings. So it's all interconnected. And um, especially it's important to learn uh, the 19th, the 20th century history. Why? Because then uh, we see already the wars and there we can track very well what Russian imperialism is and um, how Ukraine uh, and Ukrainian culture have been suppressed and oppressed for centuries and why Russia doesn't want to let Ukraine live its own independent sovereign life and why they tried to cling to Ukraine in any possible manner and to return it under the auspices yet yeah, return it and the flag of the Russian Empire because it's much deeper it's much more profound so it's not about modern Russia and modern Ukraine um, it goes back uh, to history and it can be traced back um, to many generations and if you really at least read um, you don't need to be a historian to read all of that you can read a short book of I don't know 200 pages 300 pages or at least study some particular aspects in history to understand the connections. And then you have um, a chance to understand why Ukrainians are so vocal in this war and why some, um, some phrasing, some slogans probably um, have emerged. Yeah. Mm. And I want to um, yeah, comment upon one of the last things you said about not needing to be a historian to understand why Ukraine is so vocal and why they are so resilient towards the Russian aggression. And that's because I think that in the West, uh, I can like mainly speak about the Danish youth and the generation of my parents. I think that there in general is a lack of like historical interest so i think that um, we do not study the history of europe enough and we do not care enough about our history and that i think um is to a certain degree a cause of the fact that we have sort of um let ourselves come into a sense of thinking that Oh, but that can only be like the job of the historians. So the people that actually study history and it's 100% fair for, for me to say that, um, of course, if you study history as your, um, your, as your, um, study, then, then it, it makes sense. 
that you will be more um, respected when talking about it. And I also want to uh, keep that in mind as we are doing this, that um, none of us, I think at least, are like studying it um, on a professional level. But but for me, it's just very important to keep emphasizing that although you are not a historian, it is very important to be aware of the history because that will inevitably make you understand, for example, um, some of the things that Ukraine are going through. And it will also make people understand why it is so important for Europe and for the US and for basically any country and any people that loves freedom. It will also make us understand more why this war is so important important yeah so so i think that's a very um important point to keep in mind as well and it's just um yeah also to um let the listeners be aware of the fact that that we are not professional historians but we deeply care about this and we want to make a history series with good quality that tells the story of ukraine and that treats the points of um, like the times in Ukrainian history that we really think are important as well. So so I just think that's an important um, point to make. And then I want to also talk a bit about them. Um, yeah, so you were talking about why it is also so important for Ukrainians to be aware of Ukrainian history, because that is a huge part of understanding why Ukraine belongs to Europe and why Ukraine belongs in the EU and in the free world and to that point i just want to mention that i s- clearly see a tendency where regimes that are autocratic or are in other ways non-democratic and are revisionist or um aggressive i i see a clear tendency that those regimes and those countries and those peoples peoples are the ones that have not reconciled their history, if that makes sense. So, for example, Russia is a prime example of that. We saw the essay that Putin did on alleged yeah, Ukrainian and Russian uh, historical unity, which is, of course, a complete um, like scam article, and it has nothing to do with um, actual history, what he writes there. But that is just a good example of a dictator who rules a country that he don't want to have, um, like like he doesn't want Russia to reconcile with their actual history. And, and I think that's also a huge part of why these regimes in these countries keep being autocratic and keep being, being revisionist um, because that, that their leaders, they don't allow their people to know the actual history of the country and when you have a population that doesn't understand the actual history of their countries they will also tend to be more um, more likely to um, to support for example what russia is doing right now and this also counts for china for example which um and this it's not because we need to talk a lot about china but i wrote about their um policy on the South Chinese Sea um, some years ago as a part of my uh, studies where I found out 
that they had made a claim to the UN where China wrote that apparently, based upon historical reasons, they think that they have the right to um to all yeah to all to all the south uh the, the South Chinese Sea. And and that's also an example of a revisionist aggression uh, aggressive dictatorial regime that tries to use history um to say something that is just simply not true and something that goes against interna- international law so so in that way i think that the way that regimes and political leaders approach history is also very revealing for what kind of type of uh, regimes and leaders um they they actually are so so and i think that we are it's it's not to to say that Denmark, Germany, or any of um, these um, free countries uh, are heading towards um, regime changes in a like autocratic uh, way, but I think that there is some issues with us not being more interested in history, and I think that we have some problems with also revisionist history in the West. Like it, it just seems to me. That um, in 2023, uh, like now, we we are just more um, susceptible towards um, letting ourselves be indulged, like indulged in history that I would say is bad history because it isn't like um, it, like it is like good history, and and that's what uh, yeah I know I've talked way too long now already, but but I just want to um, talk about that split that I see between what is good history and what is bad history and some of the consequences it, it have if you don't get these um, like if you if you don't um, realize what this difference is so far so the essay that Putin wrote that is what I would call bad history and when you do bad history you lead people to have wrong thoughts about how the world works and how it has worked um, during its history. And then on the other side, you have what I will call good history. And I've been, and I've uh, thought a bit more about what a good history is. Uh, so so it, it will probably be more clear um, when I talk about that. And I think that good history is the kind of history which is explanatory for actual events in the world, if that makes sense. So, for example, um, we talked a bit about different uh, historians um, before we started the recording, and I have watched the Timothy Snyder series on Ukraine um, two times because it is so uh, it is very technical and it, it is it is very uh, difficult to to follow along all his thoughts and so on. But I've now watched watched it two times, and I think what he is doing is good history. And that's because when you listen to that and when you see that, it makes you realize why Ukraine are so resilient towards the Russian aggression that has been uh, yeah, committed uh, towards Ukraine ever since um, at least 2014. And and that's why I think it's good history, if that makes sense, because it does serve as an explanatory. Um, yet it, it, it serves as a good way to explain why Ukraine is doing what it is doing today. And and I just think that's so important to um, to have in your mind. And also um, to this point, 
I can also say that I actually think that the general history as we have learned it about Ukraine, Belarus and other parts of Eastern Europe as well in general in the West have been bad history because it has always been seen from like the Russian perspective or the Soviet perspective. That has um, at least been the general trend in studies about Eastern Europe, for example, at um, at my university. So if you have an expert on Eastern European history, in general, it would be someone who have learned about Eastern European and uh, yeah, yeah, Eastern European history from a Russian-dominated perspective. And I think that's also a huge part of the reason to why everyone in the West thought that Ukraine would fall in three days to um, to Russia. And I was just lucky enough that when I wrote my largest assignment in high school, I wrote about uh, like the prospects for a new Cold War, which led me to diving into the revolution of dignity in in Ukraine, which I also um, like the the documentary that is on Netflix, like um, Winter on Fire. Uh, so I saw that documentary, and after watching that, I just realized what Ukraine actually is and what the Ukrainian people are capable of. So so that's what um, that's a huge part of why I think that I never thought Ukraine would fall within three days. Um, so that's also, for me, a very good example of good history. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to talk a bit about that that split between what is good history and what is bad history and which consequences it have if you let yourself be indulged too much in bad history. And you can also, yeah, then I also talked a bit about how um, regimes like the Russians uh, regime are using history. Um, I don't know if you want to uh, comment on that or if you want to um, talk a bit more about um, some of your thoughts or if you want to um, talk a bit about some of the yeah, times of Ukrainian history that you are looking forward to dwell into as we start. But um, yeah, that was just some um, overall, overall uh, overarching thoughts um, on my part about history in general. Yeah, first of all, I would like to comment on good and bad history. Well, my perception is that actually there is no good and bad history. And I'll explain why. Because I think that history is history. It's something that happened in the past and that in some way or another influenced the present. And history cannot be changed. So we can come up with a lot of ifs and a lot of projections of citations and a lot of conditional sentences, but history is already written. Another point is that whom it is written by, because, well, um, of course, when we touch upon really ancient history, ancient Rome or ancient Greece, for example, um, yeah, uh, of course, people were literate at that point and we have, um, we have some evidence, but still, um, we cannot be sure how these people supported the system that was um, that existed at that point of time. Um, if these people they were writing history and writing memoirs just because they were paid for it, you know what I mean. So it's hard to really assess who the history is written by. And 
of course, if we talk about um, more recent history, I mean, especially the World War II and even the World War I, um, yeah, the, the society was, um, the society has reached already some point of development and many people, they studied history, they, we had universities, we had it as a subject and many people could um, analyze and uh, could uh, criticize, just uh, reflect upon what was happening and they were um, either supportive of some government propaganda or um, critical to it. Yeah? So that's, um, these are different views on history. And why I say there is no good or bad history? Because in my opinion, um, history, well, I mean, you can, know, you can never say with 100% that this is the only history that exists. You know, because um, again, it depends on who uh, wrote it down and who reflected upon it further and really studied all these interconnections in history between um, contemporary events and between some past events, you know, like even uh, trying to predict, um, you know, to foresee the future. And uh, of course, like every nation, and I think it's normal that every nation looks um, at some battles or some historic events or historic personalities under another angle because um well um i mean in every nation there were people um like in high class society or people in in the authority government who supported certain personalities and people who were uh, opposing them so that's how this national understanding of certain personalities from um, specific countries has developed and we can never say with um, yeah we can never be sure that there is only one way um, uh, to explain history and to track history but on the other hand there is always a more common way so we always can dwell upon and we always can reflect on some alternative history yeah? as it is called in the um, as it is called in the modern world. But the point is that this alternative history, uh, it's usually very niche one. So it is supported and it is, um, yeah, it is spoken about uh, with a very narrow um, group of people, narrow group of historians or just interested people. And there is, on the other hand, this common history where like 95% of all historians, scientists, people who really... Um, have degree there and who started it and uh, who re who had their research in that PhD and so on and um, they agree on certain points and that's why we say that we take this common history as main ground for talking about historical events and their impact and uh, why I said there is no good or bad history is because um, I mean just because um, having a degree in international law and having quite many subjects on um, international relations, there is this theory of international relations. There are hegemonic states and satellite states. And these hegemonic states, uh, throughout the history, they have changed a bit, but uh, we can talk about, for example, during the Cold War time when the world was uh, bipolar, it was the US and uh, Russia. And um, and the Soviet Union, and um, like now we can talk about the US, China, and Russia. Some people may already like already discuss or debate upon whether Russia is really a hegemony state or whether it's aspiring hegemony state, yeah, and um, due to a lot of political mistakes that it has made. But um, the point is that all hegemony states, um, 
why they're hegemony, Steve? First of all, because of their like because of the square meters they have on the map. Yeah, they're usually really huge in comparison with the other countries. Um, secondly, just because most likely they were some kind of empires or they included more ethnicities, one nation under one roof. Um, and this, um, like this has uh, developed, yeah, in some kind. Um, yeah, and um, the third thing is, of course, that they have a lot of natural resources and fossil fuels because, well, um, since ancient times, uh, who has resources and who was able to um, settle the trade and to carry out the trade um, had uh, advantage there, yeah, because they could also um, invest money into developing technologies like carriers, ships, a fleet, and so on and so forth. And um, that's why, for me, it's, it's kind of normal that um, hegemony states, they try, such as Russia, for example, they try to put, or China, um, well, we also, I agree with your point that um, the, the authoritarian regimes did not reconcile. That's why they have problems here, yeah, I agree with. But um, my point is rather that um, this hegemony states, I mean, for authoritarian regimes to thrive, they should be supported. And this support, um, sometimes it really exists and sometimes it is heated up. And it's important to show to the world, it's important to show to the local people that there is this support inside. And uh, to, to grow this support, um, it's important to put the certain state or yeah, the certain country in the center of history. So in my opinion, it's not bad history. It's just centralized history. So Russian history is Russia centralized. And it makes it like when we read um, through history books in Russian, we think that Russia was like the hub of the universe. It was the center of the universe and all the trade, all the connections, all the um, uh, behind-the-scenes talks, they existed because the Soviet Union was there, because the Russian Empire was there before, and then the modern Russia, right? Um, so we feel like without Russia, the world would not be able to exist, and we will happen to be in this tribal system with um, tribes fighting each other and um, not having borders. And um, yeah, after Westphalia, for example, um, yeah, Westphalia system and stuff like that, and uh, yeah, the Vienna system of um, international agreements and so on, when the borders uh, were established. And that's the point. So their, their history is just centralized and it, it exists to keep um, their imperialist thoughts. Because if they just out of sudden change all their history books and say, um, yeah, the Soviet Union was not so good as we told you about. And, you know, these nations, these republics, that Baltic states, Ukraine, Moldova, and so on, they have their own right for existence. And um, basically, yeah, they, they, they were oppressed and there were bad things going on. Then they just cancel all their history. I mean, they cancel all they've been building um, for centuries and all the um, scientists, pseudoscientists, and so on were working on. And of course, it cannot happen because then the regime, like um, people will be lost. They won't have anything to believe to because it's very hard to shift this view radically because people will say, like, what's going on? How is it possible? Yeah, so they won't believe something new that you tell them. But on the other hand, they will already doubt uh, the latter one, the previous history. And it's very hard to control this crowd. 
it's very hard to make them believe in any kind of leader man or in any kind of state leadership and it will lead to for example population immigration yeah and just um and like a brain drain and any other things and um that's the point so for autocracies and for totalitarian regimes to um to sustain and maintain their power they have to keep their history centralized it's not bad history it's just not common history and it's very centralized history and if we look at the us if we look at many other hegemonic states um it has always been the same and it's kind of normal i mean i can relate why this is going on and the same about national history for example if you ask me about danish history of course i do know some things they didn't know about monarchy and how it developed but i cannot tell you more than that because um i'm like ukraine is um yeah geographic, geographically much closer to poland or to to um to hungary um yeah than than to denmark and it's normal that uh, we didn't study Danish, uh, yeah, Danish politics or Danish uh, history that much, and of course, it's very difficult to make people interested in something that they think is far from their country. That's why, for example, the Nordic countries, the Nordic states, since they had a lot of alliances throughout history, and more or less, if you ask any Danish about Norway or Sweden, yeah, most likely they will know a lot more things that about even the EU. Um, yeah, and it, it's it's normal. It all can be explained in one way, in one way or another. But um, it's just what I'm trying to address is that it's you don't need to know all the history. And the point of this talk is not to make you know all the names, all the dates, all the agreements, and um, I don't know whatsoever. So you don't have to really uh, focus and uh, devote much time to learn Ukrainian history because maybe um, like you will never use those dates or those personalities in your life and it's okay that they slip out of your mind. But the point is to understand the processes more because if you say that certain country belongs to the EU or, or if we talk the whole world talks about the Russian imperialism, you shouldn't just operate with notions, you should know what lies between the lines you should read between the lines and you should understand the just and to do that you should understand some historical at least some historical battles or some historical moments that changed and influenced um, the history in this way and how it all began and that's why for example you mentioned timothy snyder and i think that um his lectures they are real asset they are a heritage because now it's um Snyder is a great friend of Ukraine and he is the first person who openly um who openly established this topic. He is the first well known person and recognized historian um in the world and people follow him. People follow him because he has a certain reputation. He's not Ukrainian who is talking about Ukraine, which makes it very different. Uh yeah, he's um he is a foreigner who is talking about Ukraine and um, that makes a huge impact because um, in the first time in our history, someone not coming from Ukraine tried to explain Ukrainian history and tried to make it significant, tried to show its essence to the whole world and why it is important to learn it and to listen to his lectures to every average human being who claims... Um, 
uh, yeah, who, who wants to take a stance in this war, who wants to live in the democratic, in the liberal democratic future. And um, that's that's important to realize. And uh, when um, such lectures are recorded and are taught to students on the um, like on the ground of Yale University and on the Ivy League ground, it, it adds to its significance because um, it's not just another history of another nation. It's how this history of country and yeah, the biggest country in Europe, but uh, from, like very far from the US one, uh, influences the world history in general and how this country is important for the health for the world history and has been important for um for centuries and um and that's why um that's why it is uh, as i mentioned before we started recording there are some things that one could argue with with timothy snyder there are some um imperfections there but uh, still, like, uh, just to criticize them makes no sense because overall, in 95%, he's right just making those interconnections, not with dates, not with uh, personalities, but making this reflection and analysis of how the past um, impacts temporary, uh, impacts, sorry, um, contemporary Ukraine and impacts modern Ukrainian history and um, like uh, is a prerequisite to the Russian war of aggression um, against Ukraine, which started in 2014, that it was not a precedent and it was something you should have waited for and the West made mistakes. Um, so that's why um, I think it's just um, important for people to make those connections. For example, I would gladly listen to a Nordic history course Whenever I don't have to to learn the dates, you know, and um, maybe not so many personalities and their names, which are often hard to pronounce for me, but like um, to understand the connections, how, like, why, for example, Nordic states, why Norway is um, a bit, um, yeah, critical to the EU, why they want to be more separate but still have a lot of ties, because I believe that that's the history which influenced that. Why a lot of like why Nordic states are still monarchies, yeah, and. Import from Finland and um, why, like, uh, how it impacts their daily life. And unfortunately, I don't have enough knowledge of that. I have some reflections. I have something I heard from my friends, but um, I've never really thought about it really pr uh, profoundly. And um, that's the point. So um, understanding history would will make you shape your political stance of the of the present. Because to understand where you stand uh, politically. Um, you need to understand, um, like, you need to understand history backgrounds and you need to understand what your country has been going through, what um, certain political powers have been fighting for, and then you realize which political power to support at this point of time. And, of course, you as a responsible citizen in each of our countries, you know, where you have the right to vote, that influences your, your modern uh, choice, your modern uh, election, um, and um, that shapes how politicians will treat your country and will represent your country in the international arena and that influences the future of yours, the future of your kids, of the further generations. That's why it's uh, significant. Yeah. Mm. There is so many things that I would like to, uh, to follow up upon from what you just said. And yeah, first of all, I, I totally agree with you that... Um, that there is some problems with um, looking at it 
in terms of good and bad history, as I was um, suggest suggesting. So I just first of all want to uh, be may, maybe a bit more clear when when I say it like that. I mean also as you was were um, referencing to that it's probably more like the way that the history is taught by different persons. And when I say bad history, for example, I think it is the type of history that is presented by characters like Putin, for example, or when history is presented by people who are very far out on the political spectrum. I think that um, you, you, I think that it is fair to, to call that bad history, and and it's because for me it just seems to lead to bad conclusions for people that listen to that type of history. And I don't know, do you know um, the like the documentarist um, that is called uh, Oliver Stone, for example? Yeah, and and he he is like um, also a very good example of what I would call someone who provides the world with bad history, because he is someone that for some reason has made it his um, life goal to produce as much revisionist history as possible. And I don't know why he's doing that. I think it's probably probably because of his like political alignments in the end but i remember actually when i was younger when i was like that was like before i was 18 i saw some of his documentaries and i was so young back then and i wasn't really educated in how to be source critical always so i actually took that in and kind of thought for a while that um, the us were actually kind of the bad guys in the cold war or that um, it was more like an even split between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the Cold War, um, if to talk about which of those two um, actors that were like um, the worst. And and that's because that was how Oliver Stone presented it in his documentaries. And I also know that he has made a revisionist documentary about the revolution of dignity, which is also on on Netflix, and and I think that it is just very easy for some people to be um, how can you say it, like captivated by such history, also because uh, it kind of provides people with a different way of looking at the world that maybe seems kind of cool to some people, if if you know what I mean. Like so you, so if you have watched a lot of um, Oliver Stone stuff then you can be like one of those um, persons that can come in and say, no, but actually I've been watching um, these other documentaries and they show like the real uh, history about the Cold War, for example, whereas what he is actually doing is just to tell what I would say is um, bad history because it leads to people um, making very, very, um, how can I say it, like in, in, in terms of, getting to the conclusions that are best for keeping democracies free and stable. Like those are not the conclusions you come up with if you watch Oliver Stone too much. Um, so so it's more to say that I, I really think there is this um, problem with people presenting history not based upon an urge to tell 
the common history as you were talking about, but but where it is very politicized and where it, it is very um, like manipulatory and revisionist. And, and I think there is too many people doing that. And I think because of the general lack of historical interest I, I was talking about in the beginning in the West, um, we are just more prone to let ourselves be um, indulged in such um, in such things, and and that's why I. It's also I think I also say it because I really want to um, be aware of the responsibility that we have also now when we are doing um, this this series that that we really need to um, to present it as you were also saying it's, it's it's not that important that you know all the dates correctly or that you know who exactly was um, the leader of Ukraine uh, at a certain point, but that but that you get a sense of the process that Ukraine has been in and that you get the right sense of the process that Ukraine has been in. Um, yeah, so that was just to touch. And now I want to jump in and just comment on Oliver Stone uh, very briefly. It's interesting because I've always thought, uh, you know, like, my understanding, again, it doesn't mean that it's right, but it's just how I perceive the world, is that um, why is usually dictatorship so attractive to masses and to people? Because dictators, they always address people with very simple uh, words and simple things. And they don't talk about high materia or deep connections. They talk simply, they talk easily, to address the mass population, yeah? So to address the people, um, like an average person who doesn't have like really great um, great uh, degree, yeah, at the university, university degree or anything. And they touch upon different layers, different um, social circles. That's why dictatorship um, and authoritarianism were always um, and have been always more attractive to certain part of people. Just because dictators, when they make their speeches, I think most of them had their speechwriters. Now, have their speechwriters? If we talk about modern dictators, um, they they just make so they make connections so easily, and they they talk so confidently that you never have any doubts about what they are saying. The same with, uh, for example, with Stone. I mean, um, I don't know how much you know about it, and how much people who will listen to the podcast know about it, but like. Um, Stone, he uh, took part, yeah, he was in the Ameri in the US Army and he took part in the Vietnam War. And actually, I think this shattered him uh, because, well, there are a lot of documentaries about the Vietnam War and uh, the spirit of the American soldiers and their influence on psychics and mental health. And I think some things happened there throughout his, like, um, adolescence, yeah, and throughout his um, time there that shaped him. And that's why after he returned and he went to the university and um, tried to pursue his career as a director, he started making documentaries and films about history, about politics. And that's why um, like Stone believes in conspiracy theory. So he supports those theories because he thinks that they are uh, very direct and they, they are very logical. Yeah? So they don't... Um, they don't make you think, they don't make you reflect, they don't make you analyze. They say, here is a prerequisite, here is the consequence, yeah, or the reason and the result. And um, 
yeah, it's very easy. That's why when he went to Cuba, for example, he talked to Castro, his big friend of uh, Hugo Chavez, of Putin, and so on. And it all shaped him because it seemed that they all addressed the topic so easily and uh, like he never doubted in that. And for them, um, like this history is the real one. And I think what he makes, uh, it's not because he thinks he earns money with that. And if we, if he made anything different, you know, he w- would be just the other one, the other one director in, in the Hollywood world. No, I think he really believes in what he makes just because uh, some things throughout the war, throughout his life influenced him so much that um, he started doubting yeah, the American uh, foreign policy, the American system. And of course, when you start doubting, you you um, search for alternative history, search for alternative resources. And then you come up with some conspiracy theories because um, uh, you you want to hear, yeah, you willingly want to hear other things, even if the whole world, well, not the whole world, but let's say 95%, yeah, as I said, this common history, say another thing. That's why uh, it's important and um, that's why we see a lot of propaganda, yeah, um, and so it's 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 just because they they refer to alternative history um, as as a way to you know to um, to say that I matter in this life and some choices that I've made throughout the life, whether in the Vietnam War and some other things, uh, were right. And it's probably his way to I don't know to um, to say I'm innocent, I'm not guilty in some things, yeah, or to say. I support the right side, finally, which, of course, is not the right side in the Russian war of aggression in, in Ukraine, yeah? but, like, he believes it is right. So it's very interesting um, yeah, if you, if you just reflect on certain personalities. Yeah, and, I just, and we, we're heading towards um, like the end of the conversation now, um, but there is some, just, there's just some things I want to mention. Um, first, uh, staying with Oliver Stone, I think one of the big problems, as I see it, with a character like him, is that <clears throat> the history that he is the bad history, as I uh, still uh, will say it, um, and it's completely fine that you don't uh, agree with that um, split. Like I, I agree with your point about the centralized history as well, of course. Um, but I think that the problem with the revisionist history that he is providing people with in Denmark for example because it's on Netflix and it's everywhere so everyone can go see it and the problem here is that what he is doing is very appealing to people that are on the far left for example or just on like um, the left Um, and the thing is that the people who go to universities are like overwhelmingly people that tend to be more on the left. So what happens is that before people go to university, they see some of his work. For example, it could also be other people's work, but with the same um, underlining um, theory, um, they, they see that and then they take that with them when they go to university. And that then influences the way that they are learning as a part of their studies. And this counts for both um, political theory, which is what I'm studying. It counts for like history studies. And it also actually, I think at least counts for people who studies journalism. 
And that's why I think um, a character like him is so dangerous for the way that we approach history because it is not just that some like um, conspiracy people uh, like it. It is very appealing to people on the, especially on the far left and people that tend to be more on the left in like Danish perspective, for example, are also um, people who in big numbers goes to the universities. And I think that actually it carries on all the way to the professor level as well, so that the people that then becomes professors and teachers of history, they also still have these thoughts with them that they, um, yeah, that they dwelt into when they were um, probably a, a bit younger or just when they started to be aware of what uh, like politics are. So, so I think that's why it's so important for us also to be like a, a counter to that as someone who are just like commonly interested in history. Um, yeah, so I think that that's enough about uh, Oliver Stone, but um, I think it was actually important. Um, then I wanted to um, mention a quote that I heard because I listened to a Danish podcast, which is called The Struggle for History. Um, which is like every time they dwell into a subject and then they talk about the different sides, like the different arguments about that specific event or like regime that they are talking about. And they made a very uh, correct uh, comment about how it is in Russia, for example. So, so the line was something uh, uh, like, whoever controls Russia in the future decides how the past of Russia were. As you said, and you were also talking a bit about that with leaders, like deciding what to um, focus upon and what to write in the history books. And and I think that's one of the, the big problems with uh, yeah autocratic regimes uh, as well. So, so yeah, the idea is that the past is decided by whoever has the power in the, in the future. And and it's so so that's just an interesting quote I think, and then uh, you uh, also mentioned a saying earlier, and I think one of the sayings that I really want to emphasize and that I think is important is that history doesn't repeat itself, but that it rhymes. So so nothing ever happens like the exact same way twice. But you can definitely see that there are patterns that rhymes within history. And I think that the war in Ukraine is a very good example of that as well. Because I think that what is happening now um, sort of reminds uh, a bit about what was happening in Ukraine after the, um, yeah, after the October Revolution in Russia where uh, Ukraine also got invaded. And it, in, of course, as I said, it doesn't repeat itself, so it's not the same. But, but I think that there is some of the, like, the same uh, tendencies uh, now. So, so I think that's also an important um, a quote to take with, uh, with you to any listeners. Yeah, and then I just wanted to talk a bit about uh, the monarchies in Denmark because you uh, seemed interested in why we still have monarchies. And... Just, just, just a very quick thought on on my behalf. I think that the reason that there is still that there are still monarchies in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands, in Great Britain, is that when we 
were changing our societies to become democracies, it wasn't with like any big revolution or something like that. It was more calm, if that makes sense. So in uh, France, for example, they had obviously a very um, like bloody uh, revolution where a lot of people died and like a lot of people went to the streets and so on. In Denmark, we never really had that. Of course, yeah, we had some protesters and it was a kind of revolution. But the monarch, like the king back then, he just basically at some point said, oh, I cannot deal with this anymore. And then he just made the the constitution. And then we had, in theory, like, of course, it developed over time. But that's why I think we still have monarchies in, the, in these countries because our um, transition into becoming democracies weren't like with huge protest or, or something like that. So so I think that's why. And was there more? I know I think that was um, what I wanted to, um, to say here, heading towards the end. Now I think we should, um, just before we end, let's make some um, recommendations. And I know that you have some, at least we have already talked about the Timothy Snyder, I have some as well, but I would like to uh, hear um, yours before. Yeah, to, to sum up our conversation, maybe it would be great if we just reflect um, or remind it in the beginning of the next episode, because I don't know how many people really listen till the end. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, in terms of video lectures, it's of course important like for a foreign audience to listen to Timothy Snyder. Snyder. Um, unfortunately, I don't have really any other English-speaking examples or uh, at least English-speaking examples that cover the whole history of Ukraine. So I know some podcasts that I can talk about if, um, that touch upon the revolution of dignity and the history of Ukraine after, you know, basically after 2000s or after Ukraine gaining independence, but unfortunately not before that. But in terms of um, history books, so I have like three examples um, that are quite short so there is a book here i mean that's podcast but still like it's called a history of ukraine a short course so it's quite a short history of ukraine it's not for historians it's for average people and the book is quite tiny and it's written yeah it's quite quite a large font here and also there are pictures so it's not so long and it has like 400 pages but as i say almost every Every page contains pictures here, so, um, yeah, with some relics or anything. And um, it's basically like uh, two pages or four pages maximum per topic. So it's just um, also there are some uh, imperfections in this book with uh, dates or some events. But overall, I think um, it's a good example. And the author is Alexander Palit. So he's writing, um, yeah, like to the foreign audience and... This book is actually I bought in the Ukrainian bookstore and it's um, recommended for like um, foreigners yeah, who are interested and in, say who are not professional historians but who are interested in yeah, understanding Ukraine a bit more. And um, also two very good books. Um, I believe they are translated um, into English. Unfortunately, I could not really, um, I haven't found yet because I didn't have time for, to prepare for it. I haven't found their exact name in English, but I can tell the authors, and I believe you will find them. Um, so one of the authors is um, Serhii Plohik. So very similar here, it's Alexander Palik. Yeah, and there it's Serhii Plohik. So a bit similar, but still. 
in Ukrainian, the book is called Brama Europa. In English, I believe it's uh, translated like the gates of Europe or something like it. I'm not really sure, but um, yeah, something like that. Uh, really, if you just type Sergei Porky, um, yeah, the, the book on Ukrainian history. Um, I have it here. It, it is called The Gates of Europe, a, hist- a history of Ukraine. Yeah, then I was then I was right. I just I know the Ukrainian uh, version, so I tried it to um, yeah tried to predict how it would be translated into English. And um, this is a modern book, but I personally read it not a long time ago um, as well. Um, and it was a real discovery for me. And uh, this book I would really recommend all foreigners to read. Um, it's um, a bit uh, thicker, so it's a bit for people who already know some things about political science or history or international relations, so maybe not to start with, you can start with this one, with the first one I recommended, but still. And the third book I recommend, it's also a famous Ukrainian history professor, so I studied, I did my master's in Ukrainian Catholic University, and there there is a famous professor who is called um, Yaroslav Hrytsak, so, um, and he's really a significant personality in Ukrainian history and as a politician, I mean, like as a person who talks about politics and who talks about Ukrainian statehood in general. And um, he has a lot of books in Ukrainian history, not just one, but um, uh, the, the, like he's probably one of the most comprehensive and consistent books is like, it's called, um, again, um, it's called Global History of Ukraine. Um, to tackle the past or to fight the past or to go past the past. So I'm not sure which English variant is there, but if you just type Yaroslav Hrytsak, yeah, Ukrainian history or book on Ukrainian history, um, like uh, as I said, the second part of the title is definitely Global History of Ukraine. You can find it. Um, so um, I know this person because per- I- I've met him during my university studies. He had open lectures and he's really knowledgeable one and um i would i think uh could it be um overcoming the past the global history of ukraine all right yeah perfect yeah so we have that one yeah exactly yeah yeah probably overcoming as i said because in ukraine it's like tackling fighting overcoming could also be a good option but it's good that you found english equivalent quite uh fast yeah so maybe you can mention it just in the post as one two three uh, for readers to um, know just to copy paste to Google. But yeah, these uh, three personalities and these three authors, um, I would totally recommend. And I think these are the best examples, uh, even for Ukrainians, not just for foreigners, especially uh, the first one is definitely for foreigners, but the last two um, also. I know that a lot of my friends um, have also read it this year or uh, read it in 2022 after the full-scale invasion because... Uh, many people also want to learn about Ukrainian history, uh, recalling events that they learned at school. Mm. Um, and so we have the Timothy Snyder YouTube series, or you can also listen to them as a podcast on Spotify. And that is called The Making of the Modern Ukraine, I think. Um, if, you, if, you, if you type something like that, you will definitely uh, find it. And then you have the first one, which was just called A History of Ukraine. And then you had the, the second one, which was The Gates uh, of Europe or to Europe, uh, A History of Ukraine. And then there is the last one you mentioned, which is called 
um, overcoming the past, a global history of Ukraine. And there is one last recommendation I would like to give, which is a movie, uh, like like a it's 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 not a documentary. It's just a normal mo- movie, which was recommended to me yesterday as I was attending uh, like memorial like event and that is called Mr. Jones which is about a journalist that went an independent journalist that went to Ukraine in the 30s to document what was happening there like during the Holodomor which was the genocide you know it uh, I know that this movie this movie has a second name i watched it in the cinema back then so it's mr jones or the price of the truth you can find it also um you cannot find it also uh, under the name the price of the truth and uh, a famous ukrainian uh, singer jamala also um wrote the soundtrack to this movie so if you just uh, listen to jamala as well um you can have reflections to this movie and i also recommend it um as well and um yeah i think um it's a great um example um yeah it's a great movie to learn about holodomor as well mm. and i've i just started watching it last night actually um i started watching it after i got home from a, a bar so i don't know if it was like the best uh context to uh to watch it in but um but it, uh, definitely it seems very good and i can't wait to um to watch the rest of the movie do you have time for one more question olena yeah if it's quick i can okay yeah you can uh, just it, yeah you can uh, answer it as as quick uh, as possible but you were talking a bit about it and it uh, about a lot of ukrainians becoming very interested in ukrainian history um at the moment but can you just yeah um explain maybe why it is that so many ukrainians have become so interested in ukrainian history after the after the full scale war and i know it's uh, unfair because you don't have that much time to uh, to talk about it but um i think it's an important uh, thing to hear so so can you just talk a bit about that and then we will um, end it after yeah so i think why a lot of ukrainians um they got interested in ukrainian history especially after the full-scale invasion some of them after 2014 when the war started um well first of all because as i say uh, where do we learn the history of ukraine at school uh, and uh, we have an exam an exam an obligatory exam before you enter the university um it's the history of ukraine but most people of course if they want to enter the university and to study it or marketing um i don't know law well law can for law you need to to, to have history background and good knowledge but yeah most likely like other unrelated um occupations and um yeah university departments you just pass this exam to get a good grade and then you don't really need history in your life um, yeah, if you're a developer or as I say, SMM manager or so on, um, and um, for an architect and yeah, um, and um, that's why like many people they have this school knowledge which is uh, always very like which is always on the surface because school uh, system and exams are built on this like dates and personalities. So you have to know the names, you have to know the dates, but it's not about being able to make 
a lot of connections and reflections uh, between some historical events. And of course, after 2014, um, and especially after the full-scale invasion, um, many people, they became conscious because, um, well, it's no wonder to say that um, a lot of people in Ukraine, uh, well, they speak or spoke Russian uh, in their everyday life. Uh, but to this, they understood, uh, I mean, some of them, again, it's a big issue and a big problem in my opinion, but some people, they got conscious and they wanted to learn why, for example, when we say, yes, language is not the, the primary reason for the war, but it is one of the reasons and it is connected with why the war of aggression started, with why Russia started and why Russia keeps committing war crimes in Ukraine. And for people to understand that, you know, they're not being lied to, they're not, um, yeah, they're not being um, under the influence of Ukrainian propaganda. They started um, to buy books in, in to buy books about Ukrainian history and to read about more of those connections. So these books are not like um, history textbooks at school. They they don't mention dates. They're more like uh, fiction books where they tell about uh, stories in logical. Um, coherent manner and that's why um, it, it has become so popular and moreover uh, you know because uh, many uh, people they went abroad as refugees or just to reunite with family members who lived abroad of course as Ukrainians especially the first year after the full scale invasion a lot of people asked such things because talking to Ukrainians um, was uh, considered important and uh, to understand why these events are happening and to understand what people uh, feel or felt at that point of time. And of course, uh, to be able to explain to foreigners, yeah, um, like how it all keeps together and why uh, why Russia started this war in 2014 and why we say it started in 2014, not just in 2022, and some prerequisites for this war. Yeah, many people they needed to refresh their school knowledge from another perspective. So I think that's one more example why um, they got so interested to be able to deliver things to the um, international audience and people who speak English and to, to tell uh, through their Instagram, through their uh, stories, TikTok videos, um, etc. about um, events, horrible events and genocide that Russia is committing in Ukraine. And um, many people, they want to raise their children yeah, in this way for their children to understand that, no, it's not the war in Ukraine, that's Russia who started war in Ukraine. And I think it's very important for uh, modern parents to communicate to their children, not, um, oh, these are explosions, we have to go to the basement, but to say, these are Russians who launched missiles, and that's why we have explosions, you know course it's hard to deliver it to one-year-old child but i mean children who are more or less the language the language like the, the way you're speaking about all these things are just so important right exactly and that's the main point so um like why why it is important because also like parents and young people who want to become parents one day um, they also need to know that because they need to raise their children in a certain way and to remind their children, yeah, because they know, for example, my generation, well, I studied in gymnasium, I had really good history teacher. 
but um, not everyone had really great history teaching. Not everyone studied in good school. And that's why um, they know that uh, if they don't learn it themselves, it will be just lost. And not to lose it, not to lose our identity and to remind future generations what their parents were fighting for and what they were defending. Um, it is important to learn history and to learn history comprehensively, not just certain dates or certain events, but basically the interconnections um, with, uh, with the, as you said, the past that determines yeah, the, the present. And so that's why I think uh, it's on peak um, nowadays. And I really hope it will stay the same. And I really hope that um, Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian history, um, they will prevail and they will be a lot more important than some fiction books because, uh, well, of course, everyone has their preferred genres and, um, yeah, we are, we have freedom of choice and, um, yeah, for, uh, to exercise and uh, still it's important from time to time to read such books and to support Ukrainian authors and Ukrainian historians who um, try to deliver it because, it's not we Ukrainians tell the world why it is important, who will do it for us. You know, like as I say, um, Timothy Snyder is a great example because he's a foreigner who took it up. But otherwise, um, it's very difficult to think about people who do it not uh, due to marketing or not due to personal gain or not due to their um, political aspirations to be re-elected, for example, to some government. But really understand it's important. And I think it's our task as Ukrainian ambassadors, yeah, as people who have a good educational back background and people who speak English and um, who do read such books to deliver it to foreigners in a simplified manner, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very great way to um, end this conversation. And I would just like to, um, yeah, phrase to anyone still listening that it is, um, I think, at least pretty um, saying that so many Ukrainians adopted this huge history int interest after the full-scale invasion because it is suggest suggested towards the fact that as a very important moment in the Ukrainian history occurred, which is... Uh, like what has happened after the full-scale invasion, also after 2014, but especially after um, the full-scale invasion, Ukraine finds itself in a very important moment of its history. And during that time, a lot of Ukrainians like, suddenly, and I say that in um, quotation marks, became very interested in history. And I think that is where we're saying or why people also in general should be more interested in history because history is so closely aligned with big important historical moments um which um yeah the uh, like the uh the upsurge and uh, i'm losing the words a bit here sorry but like the um, the, the rise of historical interest in in ukraine um during this war shows that I think, and um, yeah, so that will be um, the last words uh, for today. I just want to, yeah, thank you a lot, Olena, for coming on the 
conversation series that I'm doing again, um, because you have also been on before. And now the yeah, this the series has changed names, na- yeah, name as well. So this is your first time appearing on Ukraine and Beyond, which is what I'm calling it now. Uh, before it was a uh, conversations about Eastern Europe, and I think that when we speak the next time, we will um, start off the the history series like concretely. So that will be more detailed and. I'm not sure. Uh, we haven't decided yet where or, and when we start, but it will probably be, I think, around the yeah, the, the creation of the first Ukrainian state, like the first that you can, with um, like dignity, call a sort of state, which really is the Kievan Rus, which was formed around year 900. So that's also some uh, hard historical knowledge to go out on there for the for the listeners. But um, yeah, that's the last thing I wanted to say. Do you have anything you want to uh, say as a very last some very last words? No, but I would like to thank you for invitation, and I hope that well, even if I don't know if we have a lot of listeners now, but these it will stay in the archives and stay as a playlist and. People will have access to it as they have access to Timothy Snyder lectures and they can recommend it to their friends um, to listen to. So um, I really hope that, um, that that was interesting for you just to reflect on and to think about some um, some issues and some items we discussed because if you listen to it, we disagreed sometimes with Andy, but sometimes we, uh, yeah, sometimes we, we talked about the same thing but in different words. And um, if there is any specific, um, if there is any specific event or episode in history you want to hear about, um, or um, you are interested in, I mean, in terms of interconnections, you can write it um, to me in the comments, and I think um, we'll try to cover that um, as well. And yeah, thanks for devoting time to listen in this, and um, it is important for us as Ukrainians, and it is important for Ukrainian victory. Um, so yeah, I wish you to enjoy your day, evening, depending on the pod, um, when you're listening to that and, um, see you soon. Mm. So that was it for today.
2014. What's interesting about 2014, the Sochi Olympics were also occurring at that time. And if you look at Vladimir Putin's lie on global news about the history of Russia and the Soviet Union, he invaded Ukraine that same week. 